Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, your co-host and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And you have clicked play on, uh, we hope you've clicked subscribe to, a podcast that deals in what our founder refers to as crucible experiences. Crucible experiences are those moments in life that are painful, those moments in life that are setbacks, failures, traumas, tragedies, things that happen to us, things that sometimes uh, we have a hand in, in bringing about. The common thread, though, of why we talk about crucibles on Beyond the Crucible is that very reason the show's called that, is to how do you get beyond your crucible experiences? How do you get through that pain, not just uh, deal with it and kind of shove it down, but how do you get through it? How do you move on to a better place, which we refer to as moving on to building a life of significance? And as we talk about this today, with me is the architect the Lego master, if you will, of Crucible Leadership, our founder, Warwick Fairfax. Warwick, this is going to be, a, um, I think, a meaningful show. Absolutely. Uh, very much looking forward to it. So our guest today is Sarah Nannan. And Sarah is the founder of Beyond Surviving, a movement that teaches a proactive and renegade approach to mental health and emotional resilience while navigating grief and trauma recovery. She became a military widow and solo mother of four in 2014 when an aviation accident claimed her husband's life. Her personal journey through rock bottom now informs her work with those navigating painful life transitions who seek to live extraordinary lives. She's devoted her career to teaching sustainable well-being and a new paradigm of deep, systemic integration of mind-body healing to anyone seeking to move beyond surviving the ride of life, to move beyond just surviving that ride of life. Sarah's background as a naval officer informs her leadership perspective with a community-focused model for cultivating resilience and sustainable well-being. She is the founder of Rencon Yoga Studio and hosts the Other Side of Rock Bottom podcast, which launches this summer. Take it away, Warwick. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for being here. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, before we get into your crucible experience, which some people are like, yeah, I don't know if I've had a crucible. Uh, sadly, you obviously do understand that. You know what it was. You know the date. It's. But tell us a bit about who you are, Sarah, and how you grew up, and a little bit about your family, and kind of in the lead up to your crucible, just a little about Sarah Nannan. Well, Sarah Nannan grew up in Central Amer Central Illinois, <laughs> in the middle of America, I guess. A uh, good old farm community, U.S. of A., small town. You know, played sports, was pretty smart, played the violin, went off to college, did the ROTC thing, became a naval officer, married my college sweetheart. I was four babies in. Uh, when I found out that he passed. And so I was just sort of doing that average life. My average life looked like living in Japan at the time. We were a military family on the move. He was a fighter pilot. And once I got out of the Navy, my whole job was holding down the fort while he went off and did the fighter pilot, naval aviator thing all over the world. And 
I had a lot of amazing experience with that. Our kids were five, four, two, and newborn. That mm. wild day that upended all of that everyday average American dream kind of thing we were doing and changed the direction of our life forever. So that's a little bit about me. Wow. So until that point, and that was obviously the defining crucible of your life, had you had any others? I mean, did life seem pretty normal? You know, wonderful family, siblings, parents, grandparents? Was it like, life is good, I'm blessed? And was that kind of your experience? My, my mother-in-law described us as the golden couple, that we wow. were both you know, high achievers and everything we envisioned, we managed to create. Um, we were both very successful. Yeah, I grew up with great supportive family. Everybody was healthy. We were running marathons in our free time. And, you know, short of the hardship and the crucible of going on a deployment and being yeah. locked on a ship with 300 men for six months, uh, <laughs> I would say this is certainly the defining crucible experience of my life. So... What made you decide to go into the Navy? The honest answer is that I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I found myself heading off to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana with an undecided major and a lot of potential ahead of me. I knew that I could be anything and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't have a passion, a purpose, a direction, but I knew that I loved to travel and I knew that I had always been a natural leader. And so it made perfect sense to go off on an adventure, become a naval officer, travel the world, and see if I could figure out what was important enough to me on the other side of that. So I ended up majoring in Spanish and business because that seemed fun and useful enough. Um, I got to study abroad a couple of times, and then upon graduation off, I went to meet my ship on deployment. Wow. And so... Um, it's funny, uh, as listeners would know, that it's iron ironic that you had a naval career because even though I'm from Australia, for some reason we ended up in Annapolis, Maryland, which as you would know is <laughs> home of the U.S. Uh, naval Academy. So you see yes. a lot of people in their uniforms and they all change. It's one particular day a year when they go from whatever it is, white to blue or other way around. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> Navy football is sort of big in uh in our town. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've not my background, but, uh, definitely we're a uh, Navy town, but, um, so, uh, what kind of ships were you deployed on? What, what was your role in the Navy? My ships were rather small gas turbine frigates, destroyers, cruisers. And my role surprisingly enough as a Spanish major was engineering. And that's an, <laughs> a unique thing. The Navy likes to torture their young officers with. <laughs> so, offering them um, the role of leadership in an area that they have absolutely no idea what they're doing. And the only training you get is from the people who you're responsible for. <laughs> uh, that does sound like a government yeah. job. It, it does. Yes. <laughs> so, sure. uh, so where did you meet your husband? We met the first day of ROTC on campus at the University of Illinois. We both had high school sweethearts coming into college, but we had a connection and a friendship that first semester. And by New Year's Eve, we had ended our high school relationships and started one of our own. So wow. way back to uh, 2000 was the year that we met in uh, university. So I'm assuming you were never deployed together or anything like that? I was a naval officer. He was a naval aviator, but he was a Marine and he would not 
hesitate to remind you that he was not in the Navy. Thank you very much. So we didn't ever deploy together. In fact, we were married several years before we lived together because I was stationed in San Diego and he was in flight school in Pensacola. So lots of traveling back and forth and wow. getting well-versed at long distance. Even when we weren't deployed, we, we weren't often together until I got out of the Navy in 2009. So, uh, once you were married, um, how did your service work then? Because with four young kids, how did you manage balanced Navy and, and kids? I actually got out of the Navy six months after our first baby was born. Okay. I made that, I was at that um, decision point in my career that I had served the time that I was required to yeah. based on the agreement that we created. And having a newborn was kind of a no brainer. I took a lot of maternity leave and then finished out the last three months of my really amazing, I was on shore duty, so that helped nicely that my, my work was essentially an office job. And um, when I got out of the Navy, then I transitioned full-time to stay-at-home mom, which was also a very interesting, in hindsight, crucible moment, going yeah. from um, naval officer to commander-in-chief of the house. <laughs> and, <laughs> and all of the really big life changes that came with being at home with just my amazing baby, rather than fighting the ship all day long every day that was a big decision but yeah obviously everybody's in a different situation and totally understand we were that. tired of living far away from each other to be honest work and i made the decision to get out so that we could finally cohabitate and have the same address so i'm assuming given he's a marine they, they don't like fly off a ship so i'm assuming they fly off land or Sometimes they do. Okay. Um, they're often deployed to aircraft carriers, and they also will have land-based But it meant so, that you could actually be together as a family at least mm -hmm. a reasonable amount of the time. <laughs> Theoretically. We did have the same address, so that helped. <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> and so how long were you married? We were married in 2005. Okay. And we were together since 2000, so... 14 years all told. Wow, wow. And so it was in Japan when um, kind of the, and it was a uh, it was a training accident, was it? Yes. Oddly enough, I was in Japan and he was in the U.S. in Nevada at Top Gun. You may have seen the movie. Yeah. Uh, similar but different <laughs> in real life. Yeah, he was at a high-level training command learning some really exciting things that he was tasked to essentially bring back to his squadron and train the squadron around and um, had a aviation accident that we never saw coming. Of course, when they go on deployment, you're worried all the time and anxious, but as a military spouse, I think you take training for granted so often, you know, you know, there's risks involved and but you think wrong, assuming, but you certainly don't expect it. Right. Assuming the equipment works and there's no, you know, pilot, what have you. I mean, you would just assume right. that you'll be okay. So, um, yes. Now you were in the Navy, you understand the Navy, uh, you know, Marine culture. So I'm assuming you see in the movies and maybe I think you've recounted this two officers that are walking down your, um, towards your front door. And I think you mentioned you knew why they were there. You knew it's just like you see in the movies. And yeah. even as I describe it, I can sort of feel my body remembering yeah. that moment. You know, like you have those crucible moments and you can't yeah. unsee them. And it, it, it truly is. You see them coming up the steps and you just know why they're there, which is helpful because I don't think they wanted to have to say the words to me. And we both took a while to figure out how to talk to each other about what was actually happening. Do they say the words you just see, you know, like on behalf of a grateful nation, that whole... That thing. came more toward the funeral time. Okay. In that moment, I think they were attempting to just say, 
I don't know how to say this, but there was an accident. And, you know, at that point, I was already in my complete dissociative psychology state of crying and shaking my head no while welcoming them to my home while remembering that my children were at the lunch table and trying to navigate all of the complexity of that moment with as much grace and also the overwhelmingly human emotions that naturally come out when you find out that your partner has died. The fact that you were in the Navy, did that make any difference to how you experienced it as opposed to any other spouse of you know, somebody in the military? I love that question. I think it didn't affect at all my, my grief experience and the, the intensity of the emotions, but it did afford me a comfortability in that environment that I felt ease in asking questions to high-ranking members of the military that I think others may not have. There, Even though spouses don't worry about rank there is sort of this understanding of the the structure of power and i i did had no qualms about talking to the general in very clear terms and asking questions and i think i maybe knew what questions to ask in a way that someone who doesn't have as much exposure to that kind of thing might so i I do think it did help yeah you want to know well what happened you know Mm -hmm. how could this Mm -hmm. possibly happen because i'm sure again we don't need to get into details but i'm sure your husband was very good at what he did otherwise he wouldn't have got the top gun (laughs) You know, it's not like he's some rookie first time up in the air. You know, where's the control stick? You know, where's the gauges again? I mean, he he knew what he was doing. So I'm sure that was one whole episode. And I'm assuming there's probably a a good uh, support system. I mean, sadly, this happens. Other Navy Mm -hmm. spouses, you probably could talk to not just spouses, but officers too, because you were officers Yeah, I think that I had a relationship with a lot of his co-workers that seems like a strange word but his right. his peers that maybe other spouses didn't again there was a, a mutual respect perhaps that I had earned knowing that I had also served and so I did feel again that I could call up or text someone who I saw as a friend not just someone that worked with him and say I need you to tell me tell tell it to me like it is don't right. sugarcoat it I know right. that you're trying to be careful with me but I actually, I need to know the information, whatever you can tell me is appreciated. And that really helped me make sense of it from an objective standpoint. Um, I think a lot of people, particularly in the work that I do now, they are left grappling with what happened? How could this happen? And I think in an attempt to protect us from what happened, they also rob us of some really basic information that helps us turn this horrific event into a very scientific matter of fact thing. And and that was how my son, who was five at the time, engaged with it. When I told him what happened, daddy had a crash. They're not sure if he's okay. They're looking for him, but they don't think he's okay. And he said, well, mom, there's helicopters with lights on them. So they'll find him. Don't worry. Like he was just so matter of fact about the thing because young children don't have all of those social stories to apply on top of the information. It's just information. And so, having that access to information and I guess the privilege or the self-appointed privilege to say, I'm going to ask these questions that other people might not and so feel, you feel safe asking. You at least had closure in the sense that you knew what happened and why you felt like you were give it, being given the truth, not some, I don't know, whitewashed or sanitized version for spouses. So that probably helped to a degree. And one of the things I think I've read is you have four children 
and your youngest a daughter was was it a few weeks? Yes, six old. weeks old. So mm-hmm. that's one of obviously the tragedies when you know four kids and even your oldest at five is still young, would have some memories. Very young. But mm-hmm. your younger ones probably obviously your little daughter wouldn't, you know, have She never met him actually. Um, she was born while he was already gone so he watched her birth via facetime oh my gosh uh, so <laughs> the pictures that we have of them together are are screenshots of them so not only at each other through technology. not only do you have the tragedy of your husband but the sense of my youngest daughter and my younger kids are not going to know their father i mean mm-hmm. yeah i want to obviously talk about how you got beyond that but i think it's probably obvious yeah. but the listeners are still going to want to know some have gone through your experience some have not what were you feeling about those two tragedies, in a sense? Your mm-hmm. husband dying, and your, especially your youngest daughter, never having met their father, your probably youngest mm-hmm. two, you know, not really having many memories. So how did, yeah. What was your emotions in those weeks and months afterwards? I really appreciate you making those two separate things, because I think often people see the story as one giant tragedy with no way mm-hmm. out. And it really was this very juxtaposed personal loss and figuring out who am I now without him and also this this overwhelming sense of pity being too young to be a widow, as everyone liked to phrase it, that um, I was sort of mm. clamoring to reclaim my autonomy and my existence without him um, in a way that was like very projected upon me that my, my life was kind of over and everybody knew it. And so they were there to help me suffer through the rest of my life. But then there was this other very clear desire to protect my children from unnecessary pain and also to really help them experience the pain in an honest way that was useful to their healing rather than per- like hiding them from it. And so navigating what's the appropriate amount of disclosure and dialogue with a two-year-old or a five-year-old around what's happening and helping them express that in ways that are age appropriate and even accessible. And um, there was a lot of information involved because young children really don't even understand the concept of death. So I had to teach them what that even meant before I could get to telling them Mm. what had happened. So luckily I had a really beautiful chaplain with me and he was able to sort of help me create this lesson essentially and talk about some things are alive and some things are not alive and some things have life in them and some things don't have life in them. And sometimes the things that had life in them don't have life in them anymore. So we kind of looked at nature as an obvious teaching tool. And you can see that this plant over here is alive. This tree was alive, but is no longer alive. Remember that time we went hiking and we saw that big tree on the ground. And then you can see a fake plant in the house that clearly does not have any life in it, but looks like it could. So just kind of giving them some basic understanding of life and death and what it means to be living and what happens when you're not living was sort of our starting point. And I think as they grow and as they continue to grow, they will have new experiences with their grief. They will have new questions. They'll have new understandings. As they learn to identify as themselves, they'll also look back and want to know more. And so one of the things that I've sort of done to help them know him without having known him is that he's always remained a part of our conversations. And so they'll be able to describe him to you. They know what food he liked. They know what teams he liked. They know how he liked to spend his time. 
And so I've sort of posthumously created this relationship to him for them that they can, they feel as though they remember, even though it's simply information that I've continued to help them create this image of who he was. And I think that's really helpful that even though they don't have a lot of memory of time together, they feel like they know who he was still. Wow. So I just can picture just those first few months and years where you're dealing with your own grief. You're obviously, you know, highly intelligent person, you know, get into the Navy without being a leader. So intellectually, you know what needs to be done. It's almost like, you know, it's a terrible mission. It's difficult, but I need to overcome. So intellectually, yeah. you probably, in some sense, had an idea of what you needed to do, but then you're a human being. Yes. and. You Thank know, you. <laughs> sadly, even though you might know the right things to do when you're getting mm-hmm. counseling and all the rest, you still have to deal with just we're all human and it's devastating. So you, you're trying to be strong, yeah. deal with your own emotions, but then you're also trying to help your children and just mm-hmm. be in this, to use your phrase, like this fetal ball weeping every day. That may be normal and totally fine, but that may or may not help your kids. So it's like, mm-hmm. gosh, I've got to be strong for my kids, even if I don't feel like I'm particularly strong any given moment. So that's got to be, I've got to try and help them when I'm having enough trouble helping myself. You know, I don't think I have any energy to help anybody other than me. So that's got to have been, having four children so young, that's got to have been a a huge stretch on internal resources to try to keep yourself sane and be strong and calm for your kids. You know, it's interesting that I actually had to reverse engineer my grief after that initial shock because within the week we were on an airplane back to the States with 13 suitcases and living with my folks and then seeking a house and buying a car and finding a pediatrician. And and so there wasn't actually space for me to be anything but strong and mission driven, as you pointed out, that was my, my auto default was to go straight to strong. And it took probably a year before I was able to to circle back around to now that all that's done and we have somewhere to live and they have a school to go to, now what do I do? And that was sort of the, the point where I was capable to start interfacing with the grief and the emotions and the fears and the unknowns and all of the who am I now and even the complexity of the social thing that continued where as much as I would work to find strength in myself or find something to inspire me, my identity sort of always came back around to his death for the people in the world around me. And so it took a lot to really reclaim my sense of self and then even more to get to a point where I could stand in that and say, yes, and because so many people could only see the tragic widow no matter what I did. Right. So, and, oh, that's and, uh, that's Sarah Nan. And, oh, you know, she was the wife of that Navy pilot and, I mean, mm-hmm. Marine pilot and Top Gun. It was so tragic. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How will she get through this? It's sort of like Sarah Nan and who is. Right. And the who is, like, never changes. It's frozen in mm-hmm. time. You know, you're perpetually mm-hmm. that age and that grief-stricken widow. And it, there's no end. It's not, does it feel like sort of like a prison, like they they don't let you out of the box. That's who you are and they'll never change. I, it did feel as though I was supposed to climb into that widow box and let everybody sort of seal me in there and set up shop. 
and be happy. Like that, this is your job now. Your job is to grieve and remember your husband and help us grieve and remember your husband. And for the rest of forever, this is what we will do. Mm-hmm. And when Memorial Day comes around, when his birthday comes around, we're going to come back around to you so that we can grieve together. And that will be your life. And it felt so small. Yeah. And this is a fascinating point. To, to hear you talk about that, Sarah, you began several minutes back where you said uh, something along the lines of people sort of looked at you like your life was mm-hmm. over. And Warwick, listeners who know your story, there's a very similar emotion happened to you when the takeover bid failed. And in some ways... What you just described in talking to Sarah about you're supposed to be in this box and you're the widow of this pilot, you in many perspectives, people thought, okay, you're the young man who tried to take over the family business and it didn't work. And you were seen like that too. And I think a lot of listeners who've been through crucibles, Mm -hmm. through really heart-rending crucibles, have felt that experience that they are frozen in time to use your words, Warwick. They're frozen in time as a widow. They're frozen in time as a failure. They're frozen in time as someone who's been injured in some way physically, and they've lost some physical part of who they were. And what's great about this conversation is we're about to turn a corner Mm -hmm. here in talking to you, Sarah, where you did, you have created a new life uh, from the ashes of what was, from even the expectations of people that you were going to stay there, you created a new life just as you created a new, a new and rewarding life. Warrior yeah, I mean, action. it's so well said. Obviously, you know, um, don't want to compare tragedies because it's one thing losing 150-year-old family business, but a spouse, you know, that's that feels pretty up there as about as bad a tougher thing as you could possibly go through. But but in a sense, it is a meaningful comparison, though. Yeah. It, it absolutely is. And I think it's a very universal thread that when we have what you call a crucible moment, on the other side of that, we're asked to identify as a cancer survivor or as a survivor of that person. Or right. he figured out how to fix that failure. It always comes back they, they around always, to that. Always see you. And like in, in, in my case, you know, as listeners know, as 26 year old, just back from Harvard Business School, launched this two billion plus takeover wanting to bring it back and the ideals of the founder, it fails. And so for Australia, it's funny, my dad um, has the same name as me. He was knighted, so he was Sir Warwick. So I was always called Young Warwick. So, and that's like 30 plus years ago. It's a long time. But yeah. in the Australian media's eyes, I'm perpetually 26 years old, uh, who, you know, the idealistic, naive, foolish kid who, you know, uh, let a 150-year-old family company go and I'll forever be young Warwick. I mean, I'm yes. in my 50s now. I don't feel like young Warwick anymore, but I'll always be young Warwick. So it's, yeah, the people put you in that box. So in, in your case, in terms of how you moved on, I I love the fact you talked about, even though you're a very strong, driven person, you were sensible enough to say, I actually need to experience the grief. Some people would say, you know what, I'm moving on. I'm not doing this grief thing Mm -hmm. because I'm not going to be a a weak, you know, little jellyfish. I'm not going to do grief. I'm going to be strong. Yes. I think you had the wisdom to realize being strong doesn't mean to say that you can't move on without grieving. So talk about some of the steps in terms of how you moved Mm -hmm. on and then obviously how that gets into how you help others. Because I have a feeling that was maybe step one is you got to feel the grief before you can move on. It's one of the strongest things we can do is turn toward it. And what I find over and over, and I did this myself, is that we have this model of grief that 
the statute of limitations ends when the funeral happens. Mm -hmm. And then everyone starts looking at their clock and watching how you behave. Well, isn't it about time you fill in the blank? Mm -hmm. And so we have that sense of urgency of get on with it and get on with your life and, and figure it out. You'll be fine. And when we choose to come toward it, something changes. And that's, I believe, the only way that healing can actually happen. What's tough is that the model we're given to fake it till you make it and put on a happy face creates this really ruptured reality where externally everyone sees us as incredibly strong and powerful and inspiring and doing great. And internally, day by day, we are imploding and crumbling and hurting. And something really damaging happens to the psyche of a human being when you're asked to live in two realities at the same time. Mm -hmm. And neither of those realities involve your truth. Neither of those realities involve healing. So mm -hmm. the performative external world is happening and mm -hmm. maybe you're succeeding at the performance of life, but you're not reaping any of the rewards. You can't experience any of the richness of your lived experience because internally you're so devastated and your physiology and your psychology are in such a dissociative, distressed place that you feel like you're sleepwalking through the world. And I think there are a lot of people on the planet who have experienced a variety of crucible moments that are stuck in that place because it feels like success. It looks like you're making it. And when we have those moments of pain, we sort of chalk it up like, oh, I'm having a bad day. Oh, it's just a hard day today. Or, you know, maybe I'm depressed. Maybe I just need some medication. I, I don't know. It's, I just can't stop crying. And I always invite those people who come toward my work with curiosity to just turn toward that. Whatever you're feeling, the fear, the overwhelm, the anxiety, the heartbreak, the tears, turn toward it and be curious about it. What's coming through? What hasn't been expressed? What hasn't been said? What tears haven't been cried? Because my experience isn't that unique in that when something devastating happens, it ruptures our reality, interrupts our sense of self, whatever it is, a death, a loss, a failure, a health crisis, there is always a huge amount of stuff to do to triage the moment, whether it's hiring lawyers, filling out paperwork, packing bags, moving houses, going to the hospital. There's so much to do externally that that becomes the new dissociation. You distract yourself with the busyness of the work. And we're wired to be capable of delving into what must be done because humans are amazing and that's part of our evolution is that our nervous system actually has the capacity to override itself with all of these incredible useful hormones to make the body parts do the things that must be done to keep survival happening. But yeah, Very few people have said, well, I just laid on my bed for a year and waited for it to get better. No one gets the opportunity to do that. Right. Mm. You had four young children. I mean, there was stuff to do. <laughs> there was a lot to do. Kids to school, kids to change. Yeah. But I, I like what you're talking about. There's the being and the doing. Yes, you've got to get on with life, you know, lawyers, probate, homes, you know, moving halfway around the world. But yet you've also 
got to deal with who you are because you can't be mm-hmm. your best self to your friends and especially your children mm-hmm. unless you deal with that. You know, they get yes. if you don't help yourself, your kids will be affected, like it or not. Absolutely. You know, and you were smart enough Absolutely. to know that. It's not it's for yourself, but it's also for your family. So talk about so that sounds like the cornerstone. What are some other steps which as well as as you help others? I mean that lean into yes. the pain. Mm-hmm. But that seems so profound. A lot of people say, well, no, I don't I don't want to lean into the pain. It also seems very cruel. Well, it Your does. work here is lean into the pain. Mm. Don't you want to do that? Yes. Yeah, sort of, <laughs> uh, you know, just uh, jump into the cauldron yeah. of molten lava and just yes. feel that fire uh-huh. burning. And why, who, yeah. why would anybody want to do that? But obviously, A lot of people who, who start working with me say, I expected this to be heart-wrenching, painful, excruciating. And I can't believe that it wasn't those things. And what you're asking me to get to is like, okay, well, how do we do this? How do we lean into the discomfort? How do we make time to feel it? And how do we get the resources to feel it in a way that doesn't actually completely annihilate us? Mm. Because that's what we expect. Right. And so I apologize in advance that what I'm going to say is going to sound really simple. And it always sounds almost too simple to even be useful to the people who work with me. And then they're, of course, like, amazed later on how life-changing it is. But one of the things that I started with, don't tune me out, is breathing practices and a yoga practice. And the reason that that was so incredibly important to me was I was very adept at sort of like facilitating an out-of-body experience. I think that was part of why I could be so strong. Like I will just turn off this part of me and do what must be done. And so there was a very dissociative experience in the moment of hard times where I I wasn't really there and I wasn't really present, but I could do the things. And so the breathing practice and the yoga practice helped me become more fully embodied. And I realize that this is getting into sort of yoga language, but when we learn how to stay present physically, physiologically, psychologically, socially in this human being container that we're walking around in, we suddenly have a whole new experience of our life and ourselves. And so these two practices not only helped me sort of come back to myself fully and fully inhabit myself and be aware of myself and be capable of witnessing myself more honestly rather than just performing my experience, but they also helped me reset my physiology. And I think that that's something very important that we miss as humans on this planet in the, in the game of mental health and winning at life is it's always this external thing, cognitive behavioral therapy. I'll just go to a therapist and I'll talk it out and I'll use my intellect and my language to just fix everything. And you can go to all the therapy you want. If your physiology doesn't know that you're safe yet, the therapy will never really actually land. Part of the work on the other side of anything that ruptures your identity and your existence and sense of self is that you have to learn how to teach your body that it's not in danger anymore. And so the breathing and the yoga was actually this very accessible modality that I could practice without being perfect at it to every day say, I'm going to learn how to let my nervous system come back to neutral and out of survival mode so that not only can I be here in this moment, but I also have access to my modern brain now. Because when we're in survival mode, 
we go down, down, down the evolutionary chain way back to that place where everything is dangerous or safe, good or bad. We don't have access to this incredible intellect that's capable of Im immense and endless solutions to life's problems. Yeah, it's that whole fight or flight, you know, primitive human being notion. So yeah, I love what you're saying. I mean, yeah, I guess from my perspective as a person of faith, I mean, there's different tools to do, I think, what you're talking about. Like, you know, when I've gone through some different crucibles, you know, uh, for me, prayer, uh, med, you know, spiritual meditation, you know, for me, maybe it might be reading scriptures. Is there a thought that for me, you know, some mm -hmm. spiritual thought that some wise person perhaps up there is trying to tell me? I mean, obviously, there are different yeah. ways of doing it. Some for people of faith, it might be one language, but it can be others, whether it's meditation, yoga, there are different ways of trying to understand what's going on, what am I feeling physically, emotionally, yeah. like for me, if I feel depressed, frustrated, I have to, okay, why am I feeling this? I'm a reflective person by nature. That's just, mm -hmm. that's just like breathing to me. So I'll always yeah. think, okay, why am I frustrated? Okay, what's the issue? And then I'll try and, I don't know, I don't know, maybe deal with it's the wrong way, but at least name it, recognize it. Yes, that's and, a tremendous you know. tool is cultivating that emotional intelligence and articulation so that you understand what's actually happening. Because so often our language around crucibles is very rudimentary. Mm -hmm. I'm sad. I'm grieving. I'm angry. And we don't go beyond that. And so one of the things, another tool, um, and I want to come back to something you said mm -hmm. in a minute, but another tool that I teach people is intentional language use. Mm -hmm. Being very intentional about what they say and how they say it. Because when you say, I'm aware that I'm sad right now, it has a completely different energy and meaning experience in your physical body then i'm sad there's mm -hmm. this permanence when we say i'm sad i'm sad and i will be sad mm -hmm. forever but i'm aware that i'm sad right now helps you get curious about okay well why am i sad right now let me name all the reasons and then what might i be able to do to either express that more completely or to support the sadness so that it can move through but the thing i wanted to come back around to is when you offered up being a man of faith i think that Spirituality has many directions and flavors and labels and options. And I think that prayer and meditation are accessible to everyone. Absolutely. And I think what's the best way that I heard it described was that prayer is speaking and meditation is listening. Yeah. And so I think we innately do both yeah. when we're either in meditation or in prayer. I think naturally both happen. It's so important to deal with these things. Everybody's different. But for me, if I get really anxious or something's way on me, it affects my stomach, which it mm -hmm. does for many people. And I start mm -hmm. getting, you know, more sensitive to, you know, tomatoes or acidy foods. And, you know, there's certain foods that if your stomach is out of whack, you stay away from. But, mm -hmm. you know... Other people, maybe headaches for some, I don't know. But for me, it's it's the stomach. So, you know, if you don't deal with this stuff, not only will it affect you emotionally, it will affect you, as you say, physiologically. I mean, that. Yes. I think more and more, and science is understanding there's a direct relation between the emotions and the physiology. Yes. There's a very good reason. I want to hop back a few seconds to what you said, Sarah, about the importance of mm. language. I'm a word guy. I'm an old journalist. I'm a PR yes. guy now. And I love the fact, as I was reading through your materials, I love the fact that you've called your coaching business 
beyond surviving. I love the fact that you have a quote on that uh, website that says, let's interrupt the pain and shake up the pattern so you can move beyond surviving. It's time to enjoy the ride. I did a very quick search before we hopped on this interview because Warwick loves history <laughs> and he loves historical perspective on subjects like we're talking about. And I went back farther than you usually go, Warwick, and that was Aristotle. <laughs> and this is something Aristotle said about this very yeah. subject, about moving beyond surviving. This is what Aristotle said. The ultimate value of life depends upon awareness and the power of contemplation rather than upon mere survival. Mm. Why, in your estimation and your experience, Sarah, why is survival not enough? Why should that not be where we point our compass, our, our GPS? Wow. First, thank you for that quote. What a beautiful contribution. I think anyone who is feeling unfulfilled feeling alone, feeling unhappy, feeling hopeless, depressed is kind of the word we like to use in modern America. I think any of us who describe our life that way are in survival mode. And what's so tragic to me is that we've sort of been taught to settle for that and believe that that's the best we can hope for, that life is hard and, you know, some people get lucky, but most of us just suffer and struggle. Life is hard. And so few of us understand how self-empowered we are, how many resources we have all around us, how much life is a proactive participatory experience rather than one that's only in receiving mode. And I think like we are wired for survival, of course. So that is the default when stuff gets hard. But we've also been taught and programmed and modeled that that's the best you can hope for. And what's really important for me, and I'm so grateful for your work, your work, Warwick, and others like us who are preaching this gospel of there is more than the thing that happened to you, right? Young said, I am not what has happened to me. I am what I wish to become or what I choose to mm -hmm. become. And I think it's so often that we in America, in the modern day, are so quick to still completely identify with our hardships rather than identifying those as one moment in the time of our life. And I, I do this exercise with my clients pretty early on. I ask them to sort of create a timeline of their life. And I remind them that when you were seven, your crucible moment was the wrecking of your bike and the bloody knee that you had. And that is such a blip in your past now. But it was a defining moment that you can remember, you can totally go back to in your mind's eye and feel in real time what that was like for you. And so I teach people to see that this is not the ending of your story. It's one chapter in this broader context of what's possible. And when you have a crucible, I call it a catalyst moment. When you have a crucible experience, it wakes you up to your life and the ownership of your life and the value of your life mm. in a way that you didn't have consciousness around before. We take it for granted. We sleepwalk through life. Our job is to get a retirement plan and a picket fence and a couple of kids and the right car and we should be happy. And, and we are not taught to gauge our life by the fulfillment that we experience or even how to get fulfillment beyond the external and the material. So these crucible moments are a gift. 
And I don't mean to dismiss or minimize anyone's suffering because no one deserves to suffer. And yet, time and again, it is those individuals who experience some kind of hardship that activates or awakens them to the richness of life in a way that they will never take it for granted again. They deepen into their relationships. They deepen into their ownership of their life. They create something meaningful. And I know that without this experience, my life would have never taken the trajectory that it did to the place where I'm incredibly enriched and fulfilled and and joy-filled and inspired excessively actually because of what happened to me and because I understand how, how much of a treasure it is. So talk about how that tragedy went through was a catalyst just to take you on a whole, maybe mission's the wrong word, but a whole new mission. Uh, you know, talk a bit about that because it sounds like it was a defining moment in, in an obvious way, but yet in a way that's not so obvious. So talk about how that launched yeah. you into a whole new direction, which is fulfilling and is it wrong to say in some sense gives you joy? What you do? No, please. You know? I am absolutely <laughs> joy-filled with my life and my work. And that's, that's one of the challenges, honestly, is that people still want me to be in the widow box. So for me to say I'm joy-filled and I'm in love and mm-hmm. my life is beautiful is confusing because people cannot conceptualize how that could be possible. Do you feel some people might say, which would be a bit cruel, very cruel, say, well, to really honor the memory of your husband, you shouldn't be happy. I mean, yes. I don't think anybody would say that, but do you think they're thinking that? I don't think they would say it out loud, yeah. but I am certain people think that. Maybe you just didn't love your husband that much if you could get on with a show so easily. Mm. And, and that is something that I think we grapple with within these catalyst moments is, what does it mean about me if I'm not devastated for the rest of my life by this? And there's, there's a lot of clients who come to me who are afraid to let go of their grief because the grief is the thing that feels like love now. Well, I, I mean, can't see them, I can't touch I them. Mean, but the, I can the, the obvious thing is if it were possible to speak to your husband in some strange metaphysical sense, he wouldn't say, no, I want you to grieve and be sad the rest of your life. Right. He would say what you would have said if, heaven forbid, your sure. roles were reversed. He'd say, I want you to get on with your life. Don't forget me. Yes. But, you know, get on with your life and live a happy and joyful life. He would say that, right? I'm sure there's no doubt. And you would have said that to him if the role. So how is that dishonoring his memory? I know this is obvious, but as you say, people put you in a box. So um, It's a demonstration of how small I think the concept of love is within our, our humanity. You know, people are like, how could I ever love anyone again? And I say, well, I have four children and I don't only love my first son. I actually love them all quite equally, perhaps even more expansively because there are four. I think we're so much more capable of vast love and deep intimacy and connection and joy than we realize because we're sold this story of find your soulmate and live happily ever after and they'll complete you and everything will be grand. And so really like tearing down the wallpaper of that belief system that the American dream seems to be built upon and and getting real with the fact that There's no person who can complete you or make you feel loved unless you are deeply connected to and in love with yourself. You'll never really actually experience intimacy or connection or fulfillment, no matter how great you think your marriage is. Well, and that's, yeah, I'm not a into marriage ministry, so to speak. That's what you you hear people say is if you feel like your husband or wife is the one who's going to complete you, you're in trouble, you know, because you've basically got to you know, be happy with who you are, not seek fulfillment from some other person or 
So yeah, talk a bit about uh, more what you do and um, just um, how you try and come alongside other people. I love that phrase, you know, leaning into the pain and very countercultural. And obviously, I'm sure you're not against counseling, but it's counseling and, right? It's Yes. uh, So talk about some of the and, so to speak, that you do to help other people. I'm going to answer this by also answering the question I didn't answer yet, which was, how did you get here? (laughs) I did what I was supposed to do, which was go to all the resources that were thrown at me to solve the problem that I had. And I very, very quickly realized that many of these people didn't actually believe in my healing either. They also saw me as a, a permanently wounded project that would need therapy for life and would always have this deep rift of emotional baggage dragging behind me. And I found myself doing a lot of BSing with my therapist. Like, I know what to say right now because I am a type A overachiever. Mm. So the right answer when you ask me that question is I'm doing just fine. And I never really got to this place of vulnerability, nor did they ask me to go there. Like They couldn't guide me there because I don't think that was a part of their service And so I had to sort of go off grid in search for resources that could see me as a human and could really challenge me to become more curious about what my actual experience was rather than projecting onto me what they thought it would be and what I think what they thought I should be doing. And what I found there was was really useful, but I had to look quite hard for it. And it was wasn't packaged as like the normal mainstream. Here's what you do when you're grieving. So I decided that I would create it because one day I did come to a moment in my life where I looked up and around and thought, geez, I'm really happy. And this is the thing that nobody told me was possible, Mm. let alone Mm. real. And here I am. So I guess it's my job to let other people know this is a thing we can do just in case they're also sort of Mm. buying the line that the best we can hope for is surviving. And it's okay to be happy. You don't have to apologize no matter what the tragedy is. Yes. It's okay. Give yourself permission. It's okay to be happy. Don't feel yes. guilty. Because I'm sure you have people saying, I feel so bad. I'm, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think that's a, a general theme anywhere you go. If someone experiences pain and then finds themselves happy, they feel it's confusing. It's disconcerting. How could I be? How dare I? So, Essentially, what I've done is create this coaching program that's, that's built up on community and mind-body resourcing and, and teaching people tools and language and the ability to self-reflect rather than deflect and dissociate. And I started out working primarily with widows, and it was really and continues to be really powerful and exciting and to watch them sort of evolve beyond navigating their widowhood to navigating their lives in a broader context beyond that label. They can now see themselves as human beings, not widows. And it's Mm. exciting because then we get to do the fun stuff of sort of finding out who am I without that identity. Mm. I don't have to leave behind what happened. I don't have to forget to heal. I can always have that love story as a part of me and looking forward, what do I desire to create? What do I desire to experience? We don't get there overnight, of course. There's a lot of terrain to cover, but that is ultimately where we head is getting to the place where the pain feels like a part of the story that they're very familiar with rather than one they're grappling with. And after a while, I noticed there were a a 
ton of threads that were coming through because I was also working here and there with people whose father had passed or their brother had died or their, their friend had died. And I just noticed that it wasn't any different than working with the widows. The language was slightly different, but the same fears and concerns and lack of ability to express what they were feeling and didn't know how to, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do was all the same. And so this has evolved with time sort of looking at the psychosomatic experience of navigating a painful life experience and, and what is missing in the culture that we operate in, filling that in with tools and self-resourcing and the ability to turn to ourselves with curiosity and notice what we're experiencing so we can be honest about that and make choices and express ourselves in new ways to find our way to, to the truth of who we are rather than staying in that box, whatever the box might be. Yeah. And this is a good time, sorry, this is a good time for us to do a couple things. One, uh, it's about time to shelve the book back on the, the uh, shelf. And um, But the other thing, Sarah, I would be remiss if after you explained all of that, I did not give you the chance to let listeners know how can they find out more about what you do and get in touch with you. Thank you for that. Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and uh, also have a website. My name is Sarah Nannan. It's lots of letters, so I'm hoping you have show notes somewhere. But if you look for me on the Facebook or the Instagram or connect with me at sarahnanan.com, S-A-R-A-H-N-A-N-N-E-N.com, write that down for them so they don't have to remember. Yeah, I will. And you got nothing on Schneeberger <laughs> for long letters in your name. But I digress. Warwick, I'll give yeah, you the last uh, question. I mean, thank you so much, Sarah. I love what you do. I just I have this image in my mind. I think of that whole scarlet ladder thing from uh i don't know salem yeah. massachusetts and it's almost like for some widows they feel like they have the big w on their forehead yes so they're gonna have it mm -hmm. somewhere but it doesn't have to be that big it doesn't have to you know you are more than your tragedy a tragedy doesn't define yes. you i remember in the in the 90s i wasn't in, as listeners know wasn't in particularly good shape and there were some well-meaning people that said gosh after that tragedy that warwick went through and losing all that family business and he's in pretty bad shape He'll probably never amount to more than that. He'll always be, a, you know, just a, a pile of broken pieces. Now they wouldn't say that to my face, but I felt that. Yeah, you probably knew it. probably resented it a bit at the time, but it's like sure. to me, you want to get in touch with what you've been through. But for me, as I've you know been on a couple of uh, church board and a school board, and now with Crucible Leadership, there's sort of a healing bomb, healing element as you're focused on using your pain to help others. Doesn't mean it totally goes away. There's always a scar, but um, the combination of just understanding who you are, dealing with that, being real with that—I love that phrase, leaning into the pain. But then finding a purpose for your life and our language of life significance—that's also mm -hmm. part of you know, not being defined by your tragedy. You know, you're more than just that day in Japan yes. when those two. <laughs> Marines, or it was, came down that your front walkway. You're more than that than that hour, that day, that minute, and, and everybody nice. is. So, yeah, I love what you do, and thank you so much. And um, yeah, it's a great uh, mission ministry, and uh, obviously, it gives your life meaning, purpose, and joy, and wholeness. You now can probably say you're a whole, but you're not a dis disassociated person. You're a whole person, right? Mind, body, <laughs> spirit. That's the goal, right? Be a yes. whole person with a mission to help others, which you have. So I think you can really help a lot of other people, and you have. And that's, it's a message people really need to hear. So thank you so much. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And this is when I know it's been a great show. When I have, and I'm going to show it to our YouTube viewers, when I take notes about here are some takeaways you can have for the show, and then Warwick steals a couple of them when he <laughs> summarizes his statement. So I normally have three takeaways. I'm only going to have two today. So uh, Warwick took number one, which is um, don't stay in the box. You don't have to stay in the box. That's number one. Um, uh, the way I sort of phrased it was we hear all the time that you're never too old to move beyond mm. your crucible. I think what Sarah has proven and what Warwick has proven in his own story is it's also true that we're never too young yes. to move beyond our crucible, that we are not frozen in time, even if we're young. That's not our destiny forever. And Warwick just unpacked that a little bit. And Sarah talked about it much Perfect. in our conversation. Another thing that Sarah really made clear in our conversation, listeners, is do not fake it until you make it. Healing is a proactive experience that requires intention and support. Mm -hmm. Projecting everything's okay while everything isn't okay can deepen and actually worsen the pain of your yes. crucible. Even though it may appear to those people who are, who are onlookers that you're winning, you really aren't. You're only surviving and survival isn't healing. Do not be an actor in mm -hmm. your own life. Be a character in yeah. your own life. And then the third point I think that we can walk away with from this uh, really uh, meaningful conversation is never settle but strive. Life is hard, but it's also a proactive, as Sarah put it, a proactive participatory experience. There's more than the bad thing that happened mm -hmm. to you. And you can move beyond that bad thing that happened to you and you can grab a good thing that's waiting mm -hmm. for you. And that is what we hope to point you to each week on Beyond the Crucible. So until we are together the next time, listener, thank you for joining us. And remember that your crucible experiences are indeed painful. They can knock you off balance. They can change, as they did for Warwick and Sarah, the trajectory of your life. But they are not the end of your story. In fact... If you lean into the pain, as Sarah says, if you learn from those experiences, as Warwick has talked about, they can be the start of a new story, a new chapter in your life that can become the most joyous and most rewarding because it leads you to a life of significance. <laughs>